We'll turn to our master text this morning. As you see it there on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're doing the final installment of a series that I began several weeks ago called Always Have an Answer. And it's, uh, I've been training you all in elements of evangelism. So the, the whole theme of this series has been always have an answer for the common questions and objections that people might have to the gospel. So we've gotten into some really interesting stuff. We've gotten into several different objections as well as some of the scientific ones even that people have. And we spent the last two weeks addressing various scientific objections. You know, how can I believe in your Bible when the first pages of your Bible have been disproven by science, supposedly, right? So we spent the last two weeks on that. So if you like, uh, you know, science, especially as it pertains to uh, dinosaurs and, and some of the things that we've talked about, to evolution and some of those things, if you like that sort of thing, go back on the website and check that out in the last two teachings. But we're going to go a different direction today. And we're going to talk about Jesus and the age of universalism. Now, universalism is a term, um, another term would be Unitarianism. Uh, they're kind of inter interchangeable terms. Universalism or Unitarianism teach that regardless of what you believe, as long as you're sincere, all paths lead to God and all these different religious orientations all lead to the same place. So we're going to address that head on today because that's a very prevalent and even increasingly common mindset in this culture today. So are you at our Master Tech, 2 Corinthians? All right, if you have found that, stand up with me if you will. And let's read that Master Text. And we're going to read verses 12 through 15 in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And it says this. Um, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. He's talking about false teachers in his day and age as well. So that's the context. False teachers in his day and age. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, this is a key verse right here, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. So then, do all paths lead to God no matter what you believe? Now, we covered this a little bit in a previous teaching, so some of today will be kind of rehashing some material that we've already looked at, but we're expanding today upon this concept of all paths supposedly leading to God. So again, the question is, do all paths lead to the same place? Do all beliefs lead to the same place? Isn't sincerity what matters? Isn't sincerity the marker of truth? As you see there, um, all those symbols above the heads of those people in that picture representing all the different belief systems that are out there, do Hindus and Muslims 
and Buddhists and Christians and Jews, do all those belief systems lead to the same place? Now, if we were to say yes, and we were to say that all paths lead to God, then we have to also take that to its logical end. If all paths lead to God, then that includes Satanism, right? Um, Jihad, the Muslim jihad that slaughters people that don't believe just like they believe. If all paths lead to God, then Satanism and Muslim jihad and all those things, they must be approved by God as well. Human sacrifice in some of these pagan cultures, that still goes on today, by the way. Then all paths, I mean, God must be happy with those people too that practice human sacrifice and Satanism and I mean, they're, they're just as sincere as we are about what they believe, right? So do all these paths lead to God? And you've probably seen this bumper sticker before, this coexist bumper sticker, right? Well, that all sounds nice and everything, but we really need to ask the question, can two people believe something completely opposite and they both be right? Let me ask you a question. If one person said two plus two is four, and the other person said no, two plus two is five, and they're both just as sincere, are both of them right? Somebody's wrong, right? Somebody's wrong. So there are some common elements in Buddhism and and Hinduism and Christianity and Judaism. There's some common elements, but there are some other elements that are completely in opposition with one another. So are all those paths right, even though they're in opposition with one another, just because the believer is sincere about what they believe? On the screen there, you're looking at the Dalai Lama, which is a leader in Buddhism. And he said this, and this sounds like a very reasonable statement. He said, the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it's open. Well, that sounds like a very nice statement and very well worded, I I might add. But I want want you to understand something. Look at the screen with me. Uh, Satan doesn't come at you looking like that. Satan doesn't come at you very obviously with a, you know, a a pitchfork and, uh, you know, a red jumpsuit on and, uh, you know, right, and and, and a sharp tail and and with horns telling you what he's going to do to you. The Bible tells us that Satan often masquerades as an angel of light. Satan will come at you more like something that looks like that, something that looks very appealing and very reasonable and very attractive. So on that note, then, I want to read to you what 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15 says. This is part of our our master text, a section taken out of it. Satan himself masquerades... As an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants, like the Dalai Lama, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Let me also quote someone else in our culture who a lot of people highly respect and listen to, and that's Oprah Winfrey. Let's see what she says on this subject. One of the biggest mistakes, she says, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way to God, she's talking about. 
There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. In other words, you can believe whatever you want to about God. It all leads to the same place. It's all, you know, we're all going to the same place. We all believe pretty much in the same God. But let me remind you again what the Bible says, and we'll apply this to Oprah Winfrey and people like her that make those kinds of statements. And God bless her. I pray for her soul. I mean, I don't wish any ill will toward her, but she needs to get saved. Um, and, and, and let's again apply this section of the master text to this statement and what, and what Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey's leading people to hell, ladies and gentlemen, because she's, she's perverting the truth. So let's apply this segment of the, uh, uh, our master text to this statement and Oprah Winfrey as well. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Now, I want to provide a key thought this morning as we get going in this teaching and quote somebody by the name of Kevin DeYoung. And this is kind of the thesis statement upon which we will build this teaching this morning. And listen very closely to this. Let's read together. All paths lead to God, but only one path will present you before God without fault and with great joy. Pick a path, any path. It will take you to God. Trust me, you will stand before him one day. You will meet your maker. You will see the face of Christ. There are many paths up the mountain, but only one will result in life instead of destruction. Yeah, well said. So I'm going to talk to you about what Jesus said of himself and the path to life. So was Jesus simply a good moral teacher who meant well and nothing more? Was he simply just one of many religious teachers and nothing more? Well, in order to, to answer that question, we're going to have to first find out what Jesus said about himself and what the Bible says about Jesus and the way to salvation. So again, now, a lot of this is rehashing ground that we've already covered, but one of the things that I want you to know is why I proceed here is that remember me making the statement that if you're addressing somebody in conversation and you're answering a question or an objection that seems like it's off the beaten path, um, well, it's fine to go ahead and address that objection or question, but always circle it back around to the centrality of the gospel. You remember me saying that? Well, that's what I'm doing here with the, with the end of this series. I've covered a lot of ground, but what I'm doing now is I'm circling it back around to addressing the centrality of the gospel. So I'm going to give you um, information today that we've already talked about many times, but repetition is the mother of learning. And if you're going to memorize anything regarding uh, presenting the gospel to someone, it must be I mean, if you're going to take one teaching out of this whole series, it ought to be this one. Because this is the centrality of the gospel right here. So forgive me for those of you that have been around for a while and you've heard me talk about the gospel. Um, I, I, I give several just nuts and bolts gospel presentations every year. This is another one of those Sundays where I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to lay out the gospel for you. Is that okay? Now, I know that most of you here are saved already, so you know what it means to, to, to come into the kingdom through Jesus Christ, but you need to know how to articulate this to other people, and that's the whole point. 
All right, so let's get back now to this question. Was Jesus just a good moral teacher and nothing more? Well, Jesus said of himself, get this statement. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered. Who was he talking to? The Jews. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, why is that statement important? Well, because that statement, I am, was used by God, Jehovah, Father God. And and it goes back to um, when God told Moses to go speak to the people of Israel and, and let them know that God has commissioned me to lead you out of Egypt, Moses said, well, what if, what if the people um, say, who sent me? And God answered Moses, tell them, I am has sent me to you. Amen. Jehovah God referred to himself as I am. Amen. So when Jesus said this statement, <laughs> Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I am God. I existed before Abraham was even born. See, what he's answering there is the Jews who said, you're not even 50 years old. But yet you claim that you've seen Abraham. And this is his answer. Very truly, I tell you. Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, and Abraham lived 2,000 years prior to this time when this was recorded. When Jesus walked the earth, Abraham lived 2,000 years before that. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. He was saying, I am God. That's exactly what he was saying. And, And that's why, by the way, they picked up stones to stone him. Because they knew what he was saying. They knew he was claiming to be God. That was blasphemy. So they picked up stones to stone him. So they knew exactly what he was saying. Here's the section of scripture that I was referring to a moment ago with Moses. This is in Exodus chapter 3. Look at the similarities here. So I, I, I want you to see this to know, so you know I'm not lying to you. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 out of Exodus 3. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Jesus used that same term to apply to himself, ladies and gentlemen. He made no bones about what he was saying. I am God. I existed before Abraham was even born. Now, in John chapter 1, it gives us a little bit more of a description about who Jesus was and his existence before even coming to the earth and being born as a, as a baby and being called the name Jesus. Look at what John chapter 1 says. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It goes on in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Talking about Jesus. 
We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Ladies and gentlemen, people have said, well, you know, Jesus was just a good moral teacher and claimed nothing more. Um, no, you haven't read the Bible. I'm sorry. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus is God. Now, I can't really give you a protracted discussion this morning about the mystery of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different entities, three different personalities, I should say, that exist as one entity. One God, three different expressed personalities. Now, don't ask me to tell you and to give you some intellectual um, description to your intellectual satisfaction how that's true. For goodness sake, I don't know. I'm a limited man. God is limitless. If he wanted to manifest himself in a million different personalities, couldn't he have done that? Of course he could have. But he chose to manifest himself in three different personalities, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet still one God. I, I don't know how that's possible, but I don't know how Jesus walked on water either or passed through walls, or did some of the things that he did. I, I don't know. Some people, some people want to like get in a protracted discussion about, well, how is the Trinity possible? How? I don't know, and neither do you. <laughs> okay. All right. For goodness sake. Let's go to the Old Testament. Uh, here's a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. Uh, Jesus, and look at what it says about him. Isaiah 9, 6, we, I, I usually always quote this around Christmas time, which is the reason for the, uh, the, uh, the little manger scene there. But look at what it says, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want to emphasize a, a couple of words and phrases in that passage so that you have no doubt at all about who this is talking about. So let's first of all focus in on the child. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is talking about Jesus. This is prophesying Isaiah was written 700 and some years before Jesus even walked the earth. This was an incredible prophecy about the coming Messiah, Jesus, that was prophesied more than 700 years before he walked the earth. For, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now look at how this child and this son is described. What's his identity? Mighty God. That's what it says about the son, the, the child who was to be born into the world, the Messiah, the one who would come to take away the sins of those who trust in him. Let's read a little bit more out of the book of John, chapter 14 this time. Jesus making a statement about himself here. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. Not through all these different belief systems, Hinduism, you know, all these different belief systems that claim that Jesus was just a way, but not the way. That's not what Jesus said. 
the, the offer is made to everyone, ladies and gentlemen, but the way is narrow, the Bible tells us. One way, the way is narrow, but the offer is open to everyone. The offer is op- open to everyone. Let's read on here in John 14 and verse 9. It says, anyone who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Did Jesus claim that he was just a way of many? <clears throat> He claimed he was the only way, the only way. So then, what did Jesus say about the way of salvation? If he he claimed to be the only way to the Father, what did he claim specifically about salvation? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he said this, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that gate, the wide one that leads to destruction. Many are on that one, on that road. Many enter through that gate. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Now, a popular cultural um, idea is that most people are going to make it to heaven. Because all you got to do is just be a good person. So most people are going to make it to heaven. The Bible actually teaches the opposite, that, that few people will find that narrow path. Because of various reasons. Because it violates their intellect. It violates their idea of, well, can I just be good enough? Why, why do I need Jesus? Why can't I just you know, do a lot of good things? And God will accept me based upon all the good things that I do. You know, there's those kinds of cultural ideas that are completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. Okay? So that's the way we get through right there in in that illustration. The, The narrow, difficult path of the cross. You've got to lay everything else aside. And that's why that individual coming through, I mean, there's no clothing there that you can see, that represents you got to strip off everything that you think merits God's pardon. All your good deeds, all your supposedly good attitudes, all your good works, you got to strip off everything if you want to come to Christ because you bring nothing to the table. You and I bring nothing to the table that's going to merit salvation. Nothing. Not your personality, not your income, not fame, not your good works, not how nice of a person you are. Because the Bible tells us that on our best day of righteousness, on our best day of good behavior, our best efforts at righteousness are like filthy rags in God's sight. That's Isaiah chapter 64. So we bring nothing of value to God. So that's why you come through the narrow way, the way of the cross. All right. Now, on that note, I want to take this in a little bit of a different direction right now and talk about the claims that Jesus made of exclusivity. Because if those claims were true, then that forces black and white choices. I'm showing you a book there by Josh McDowell, the classic uh, More Than a Carpenter. He's written a lot of books. But he wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter, Um, that uh, validates the claims of Jesus as being God and the only way to salvation. And there's a lot of historical and scientific validation uh, for Jesus being exactly who he said he was and Jesus raising from the dead. That's a really good book to check out um, if you want more information on this topic. But 
See, one of the things that Josh McDowell points out is that Jesus, of course, since he claimed to be God in flesh and the only way to salvation, Josh McDowell points out if that wasn't true, if Jesus said that, but that wasn't true, and he knew it wasn't true, then that would make him a liar and a charlatan and not worthy of any kind of praise and worship and devotion. He wouldn't be a way at all if he was a liar and a charlatan, right? Well, okay, well, maybe he was just delusional and maybe he just sincerely thought that he was the son of God, which, of course, would make him a lunatic, by the way. (laughs) And I think we can safely say that Jesus was neither a liar nor a lunatic based upon the historical evidence. So if that's the case, that leaves only one other choice, ladies and gentlemen, that he was exactly who he said he was, the Son of God and the only way to salvation. There's no wiggle room. See, there's only two reasonable choices then because of the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. There's only two reasonable choices. Reject him entirely because if he was a lunatic or a liar, then he wasn't a way to salvation at all. So just go ahead and reject him entirely. But if he was, he was neither a liar nor a lunatic, that leaves only one or the other choice and one other reasonable response, and that would be to embrace him as the only way of salvation. So ladies and gentlemen, it's simply not intellectually honest for people to say that they're Christians and yet embrace many other belief systems at the same time as Oprah Winfrey has done. Because Oprah Winfrey claims to be a Christian, but she's nothing of the sort because she believes in all these different ways that lead, I mean, which really undermines the message of the cross, doesn't it? It undermines the message of the cross. So let me say it again. It's simply intellectually dishonest for people to claim to be a Christian but claim that there's all these other belief systems at the same time that lead to God. Why did Jesus, or why did God make only one way through Jesus then? Why is there only one way? Well, it's because, and please write this down in your notes, it's because mankind has a problem that we cannot solve ourselves. And that problem is called sin. We cannot solve the sin problem ourselves because we've all smashed God's laws into a thousand pieces repeatedly. And as you've heard me say in previous teachings in this series, we've all pretty much flipped God off repeatedly and said, I don't need you. I don't need your Bible. I don't need Jesus. I know what's best for me. So let me do it my way. And I'll just try to be a good person. And I'll get to heaven someday if there is one. And if if there is a God, he must be happy with me because I'm a good person. But that attitude has not dealt with the sin residing within our own hearts. That there had to be a scapegoat in order to solve. So I'm going to read to you a passage out of Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 through 12, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 18. Let's read together. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God 
before their eyes. And that last phrase was taken from a passage out of um, the book of Psalms. I'm going to read to you here in a moment. See, the price for mankind's reconciliation to God and from sin requires blood. I'm not going to elaborate on that point except to say that in the Old Testament, God required animal sacrifices because blood had to be shed for the atonement for people's sins. So salvation has never been able, not in the Old Testament and not in the New Covenant, salvation has never been able to be obtained through our works. It's always been through blood. So we have always needed a stand-in, someone in this day and age who could plead our case, who would even pay our ransom, which is what the Bible teaches us that Jesus did. So you see, we needed a scapegoat, a way to be saved in spite of our sin and rebellion. So Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, the covenant lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. I'm going to keep reading here out of Romans chapter 3. I'm going to jump down to verses 21 through 25, which says this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, talking about the Old Testament law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. So, ladies and gentlemen... Jesus is the sacrificial covenant lamb that takes away the sins of the world for those who believe. Now now listen, I want to add to that thought though. Salvation isn't just about forgiveness. If it was just that, it would be wonderful and glorious. But it's not just about forgiveness, but moreover, it's about entering a blood covenant with the Father through Jesus Christ. It's, it, it, you can think of it this way. It's like a contract with God. And God says, if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him, then everything that I have is now available to you. Amen. We give up everything that we have, that we have, which is not much anyway, We give up everything so that we can get all that he has to offer. It's a great exchange. It's the great exchange. Amen. You give up everything. It's the pearl of great price. You go sell everything to buy the field where the pearl of great price has been found so you can go buy that field and then claim the prize for yourself. But it it requires that you give up everything. You have to sell everything to buy that field so you can get that pearl of great price, the Bible tells us. That's the great exchange. Hallelujah. So through Jesus Christ, then, we're not just forgiven, but get this, we now have actually become the beloved children of God. I don't think you heard me on that one. (laughs) Through Jesus Christ, We're now not just forgiven, but now we've actually become the beloved children of God. Hallelujah. 
See, 1 John 3, 1 says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us so that we might be called the children of God. You're not just servants, but we are. We're servants. You're not just slaves. We are that. But no, more than that, we're the children, the beloved children of God, the apple of his eye. When my mother was still alive, she wrote a religious column in the Republic, back when the Republic was still allowing stuff like that. She wrote a religious column, and the name of her column was called Objects of Our Affection. And she was referring to, you know, in, the, in that title, um, Objects of Our Affection, um, things that draw us closer to God, things that, that God does for us that draws us closer to Him. But you know what? Moreover, we are objects of His affection. I, I'm not, I, and that blows me away that I could be an object of His affection knowing what I know about myself, knowing what you know about yourself, that we could still be an object of God's affection. That he knows you by name. He's called you out by name. He loves you so much. He's bothered to number the hairs on your head, right? He's, he loves you so much that he wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. Hallelujah. Well, I'm adding a bunch to this other than just the evangelistic part of it. But I'm just, I want to encourage you today about how much God loves you. You don't even, you don't even understand. You don't even get it yet. How much God loves you. You may have scratched the surface a little bit about how much God loves you. But no, that, that's why the Apostle Paul had to write to the Ephesians and said, I, I pray that you would be able to understand how wide and how deep and how long is the love of God toward you in Christ Jesus. You don't even get it. If we could get a new revelation of how much God loves us, I'm telling you, it would change everything. You wouldn't be fearful anymore. You wouldn't be nervous anymore. You wouldn't be anxious anymore. Because you know that no matter what happens, God's always in your corner. He loves you. And let me tell you something. Even on your worst day, He loves you. Even on your worst day, His mercy still extends toward you. If you don't give up on Him, He's not going to give up on you. Praise God. All right. So then, as we uh, go in a little bit of a different direction now, and I think this is my last section of this, this teaching, and we'll start to come, come down home stretch here in, in just a bit. But I want to deal for a little while here on why so many people reject the cross. Because I just gave you a bunch of good news just now. And you'll give that same good news in some way, shape, or form to the people that you witness to and share the gospel with, and you'll still get that posture right there. That talk to the hand, because the face ain't home, leave a message at the tone, beep. <laughs> right? And people don't want to hear it. Well, why is it that so many people reject such great news? Well, let's deal with this. Um, first of all, all other religions of the world provide a means of quote-unquote spirituality that here's the key point that bypasses the cross and personal repentance. If you read in chapter 3 of John, Jesus is speaking, 
And he said that light has come into the world, but people have rejected the, the light because they want to live in the darkness. Why do they want to live in the darkness? For fear that their evil deeds will be exposed by the light because they love the darkness. They love their sin. That's a big reason why people don't want to come into the light because they love their sin. So they reject God, keep him at arm's length, and make up reasons why I don't have to believe that. I can just do it. You know, I can just, I, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'm going to be okay. Not what the Bible teaches. God's not grading on a curve. He's not grading on a balance scale. Okay? The first time that we committed a sin, we became lawbreakers and criminals in God's judicial system. And we need a savior. We need a scapegoat. Psalm 36.1, verses 1 and 2, which Romans 3 that I read you earlier quotes from, says this. There is an oracle or a saying in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Boy, doesn't that describe so many people in our culture today. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his eyes, what does he do? He flatters himself too much to hate or even detect his sin. People do not see sin as exceedingly sinful because they flatter themselves too much to hate it. They love their sin. That's a one big reason right there why people reject the cross. So this is another key statement right here. All religions of the world are then religions of works which appeals to mankind's sense of accomplishment. We want to have a... We want to feel like that we had something to do with it. We want to feel like that we worked and we labored and we dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And we had something to do with our salvation. But God says you bring nothing to the table that would merit salvation. Nothing at all. We are all spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. And so we bring nothing to the table. We have to rely wholly and completely upon Jesus and his finished work on the cross. But see, mankind's pride wants us to feel like that we had something to do with it, that, yeah, I can pat myself on the back for this. That's why so many religions of the world, I think it's Islam that has the eightfold way, something like that, that is, is, is a list of do's and don'ts. You've got to do these things in order to be right with God. I heard, heard Andrew Womack tell a, a very interesting story recently about a, a Buddhist woman who was going through her Buddhist rituals, and she just got worn out with it. And she's, she's like, Lord, I know this can't be it. I mean, she didn't call him Lord. She said God, whatever the, the, the name for, you know, Allah, maybe. I mean, she said, I think she said, God, I, I, I know this is not it. This is, but I don't know what the way is. Please send me somebody. Uh, help me to understand what your way is. And she heard an audible voice. And the audible voice told her, I'm going to send someone to you tomorrow who will tell you about me and the way. And I don't remember exactly how her and Andrew Womack bumped into each other, but, but um, she knew that he was a, a minister, and she said, you're the one. And he had no idea what she was talking about, but he said, yeah, I am the one. 
And then she explained what had happened to her the night before. And, he, and then he said with confidence, I absolutely am the one. Let me tell you about Jesus and the only way to salvation and to be made right with the Father. And she got saved that day, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoken tongues and everything. And, uh, and man, she had a radical transformation and is no longer a Buddhist, but is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, but the, God is revealing to himself to people all over the world today in, in all different kinds of belief systems, praise God. So once again, all other religions of the world are religions of works, which appeals to mankind's sense of accomplishment. But I wanna, want you to understand, folks, that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, let me elaborate on that point. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know it well, says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, you can't pat yourself on the back and say, I did all these religious things, so now God's happy with me because I did these things. No, it's not of works, so no one can boast like that. It's by, by faith alone through the grace of God. But it goes on to say in verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, right there in those three verses, you've got the gospel encapsulated. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works and to do good works as a result of our salvation. Does that make sense? And this is a key verse or a key phrase right here. Uh, Please write this down. Fill in these little fill in the, the blanks there in your... In your notes, God, this is good news. This is shouting material right here. Okay, here we go. God is never related to mankind based upon what we deserve through the cross and only through the cross. God now relates to those who trust in him based upon what Jesus deserves. Now, now let me qualify that apart from the cross Yes, God does relate to mankind based upon what our sins deserve. Apart from the cross, that's true. And that's a scary thought. But through Christ and through our faith in him, through the cross, God now relates to those who trust in him based upon what Jesus deserves. Hallelujah. Praise God. Yeah. Get excited about that. Hallelujah. Let's keep reading. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Come, we're, we're coming down home stretch here. Bear with me. Are, are you okay? Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's why so many people reject the cross. It's foolishness to them, the Bible says. Keep reading. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, folks, listen, the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to try to appease an angry God by desperately trying to be good enough, which you will never, ever be able to be good enough anyway, because Jesus paid that price for you and me already. See, all we have to do is believe and then receive, the Bible says, and then just follow him. I mean, it's so simple a child can understand it, yet it's foolishness to the masses, Here's another scripture out of 2 Corinthians 4.4. And this is another reason why people reject the cross because it explains that the God, little g, the God of this age, who is that? Satan. 
The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we need to be praying for people that their eyes would be opened, their hearts would be softened, and they would be able to see and understand and receive the glorious hope of the cross. Praise God. All right. Here's my last key concept right here in this statement. This pertains to universalism that supposedly all paths lead to God. Saying that those who reject God will be saved, universalism belittles the holiness and justice of God and negates the need for Jesus' sacrifice. Let me read that to you again. Saying that those who reject God will be saved, universalism belittles the holiness and justice of God and negates the need for Jesus' sacrifice. Universalism, ladies and gentlemen, is a lie from hell. There is only one way to God, and God has the right to choose only one way and require that we come through the cross. By the way, a little bit of a side note, um, I think it was a week or two ago uh, during our Q&A time, uh, Matt Cooley um, asked a question about uh, Calvinism. Uh, and, and that's too big of a topic for me to really um, talk about at length, but I will say just a brief statement or two about Calvinism. Calvinism is that belief system that it's, it's an extreme sovereignty of God teaching that, that God has preordained every decision that every person will ever make throughout all the term, from, from the, the from when time began throughout all eternity, that God's just... He's, he's dictated it all. So Calvinism is a belief system that started in the 1500s um, through uh, an individual by the name of John Calvin and uh, then a, a Dutch pastor by the name of uh, Joseph Arminius uh, rose to prominence because he um, began teaching that that's a heretical, that Calvinism is a heretical teaching. And so he began, he came to prominence as well uh, to teach something completely different. If, if you need a deeper dive into that, I've written a book called um, Eternal Security on Trial. And last time I announced that book, I had a, a supply there in the, the, uh, the, the little supply room over there. You all cleaned me out. So I don't have any of those books now. But if you want to order it, it's on Amazon. It's on uh, my ministry site, andrewrobbinsministries.org. You can pick up the, I think it's even on our church website. You can uh, order it right from there as well. Uh, but that's a deeper dive into this. I can't really elaborate on that at length today, except, except to say that that extreme sovereignty of God, boy, I feel like I need to qualify some of these. Some of these. You know, uh, God is sovereign, okay? God knows the beginning from the end. The, the, the biblical definition of sovereignty is God knows the beginning from the end and that he is, he is supreme in power and, and wisdom and authority. That's what sovereignty means. It doesn't mean that God is dictating every decision that you will ever make if, if that were true, then we would have to, the, the logical conclusion of that is that God is dictating pedophilia. You, <laughs> you're talking about my daddy. And when you're talking about my daddy, the Lord, my, my father, you better not say to my face that without a response, or I will give you a response. You better not say to my face that God ordains pedophilia 
and murder and torture, that God's ordaining these things, that God is behind, is, is God a monster? No, God is sovereign. He is supreme. He's not ordaining every sick and twisted decision that every person makes. Okay, so, so I, I want to address that question by, uh, from Matt about Calvinism because it relates to universalism. Calvinism, in that way, that extreme sovereignty of God teaching, also negates the need for the cross because if everyone was predestined to either die and go to hell or to, to uh, be saved and go to heaven, if all of that was already planned out by God and he's forcing it to happen, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? If, God's, if God has forced all that to happen already, then why did Jesus have to die a gruesome, agonizing death on the cross? See, Calvinism, like universalism, devalues the cross. See, Calvinism teaches that Jesus died only for certain people. Now get this. Uh, if you're familiar with Calvinism at all, there's five points of Cal Calvinism that's represented in the, in the letters T-U-L-I-P, tulip, okay? So Calvinism teaches that Jesus died only for certain people and that are pre-selected by God. And no one has any free will in the matter, okay? But to the contrary, Jesus said, for God so loved only certain people. Oh, sorry, I got that wrong. For God so loved the world, that's everyone, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's everyone, would believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. So ladies and gentlemen, the offer is open to everyone, whosoever, whosoever, hallelujah. So don't be fooled by that whole so extreme sovereignty of God teaching that God's dictating. Look, if God's dictating everyone's decisions, why do we even witness to people? Why do we pray for people? If, if God's already got it planned out anyway and that nothing's going to change, why do we even, why are we on this topic? Why are we doing this series? Why do we witness to people? Why do we pray for people if it's already planned out? God's given us free will. Now, does he know the beginning from the end? Does he know who will reject him and who will accept him? Of course he does. But he's not forcing it to happen. Okay? So the offer is open to everyone, whosoever will. So here's the good news in a nutshell. Now I'm about done. And again, these are just kind of little bullet point sayings here that, that um, you can use in your own evangelistic proclamations. So when you trust Jesus as your Savior, then you are eligible for not only eternal life and eternal rewards, but also the possibility of blessings in this life too. I think that ought to be a part of your, your gospel declaration because that's just as true as our eternal rewards. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Hallelujah. 2 Timothy 4.8, godliness has value for all things, not only in this life, but also the one to come. So yes, there's benefits not only in the hereafter, but also in this life too. Amen. You know what? 
I was listening to some gal on uh, social media rant and rave. And she said, I wish all you Christians would just leave me alone. And, and, and she, she said this. She said, listen, let me just make it easy for you. I want to go to hell, okay? That's what she said. She said, I want to go to hell, so just leave me alone. Stop telling me about hell. Stop telling me about God's judgment. I want to go there, and it's going to be awesome because you crazy Christians won't be there. That's basically what she was saying. But I'm telling you, folks, there's blessings in not only the life hereafter, but also in this life, too. And when I heard her say that, I said, you know what? Even if I discovered none of this was true, even if something happened where it could be proven beyond all doubt that everything that I believe about God is untrue, you know what? I wouldn't change a thing about my lifestyle. You know why? Because I'm blessed. That's why. And I was living in the curse when I was in sin. And now I'm blessed, so I wouldn't change a thing. But God does exist. He does love you and me. He does want to bless you in this life as well as, not that you are not going to have challenges and persecution and disappointments. That's part of living in a broken world. But moreover, God wants to bless you in this life as well as the life to come. And I tell people that in my gospel proclamations as well. It's my my last verse for you, and then we're going to pray. Um, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Hallelujah. Stand and pray with me if you would. Praise God. So I'm hoping that even though, you know, I know that I don't know every single person in the room like really, really well, but I think I know all of you enough to know that you all already kind of know all of this, but I wanted to, to give you another presentation of it so that you kind of have a, an encapsulation of what is the gospel, what is it that I need to be sharing with people. Um, and, uh, you know, if it just, you know, if you just had 30 minutes to talk to somebody, you know, all the little rabbit trails aside that people want to lead you down, this is the centrality of our faith right there. The gospel um, in, in its purest form was presented this morning. So that's what you need. You need to master what we talked about this morning. That's what you need to master. So I'm going to make a recommendation to you. We've covered a lot of ground in this series and a lot of different points that you could um, be equipped and armed with to address people's objections. But if I were you, I would go back to the recording. It'll be posted probably tonight or tomorrow. Go back over this recording and listen to it seriously. 10 times, maybe 20 times, because I would love for all of you to be able to articulate the gospel as in, in the purest form as I did this morning. I would look, God didn't just call preachers and pastors to declare the gospel to the world. He's called preachers and pastors to equip you to go preach the gospel to people. So I've God has equipped you today through a very pure presentation of the gospel. Now, go back and listen to it. Educate yourself. There's no reason for you not to be educated along these lines. There's no reason for you not to know how to present the gospel to people. In this age of so much information and the fact that we post these on the website for free, listen, no charge means no excuse. Okay? They're on the website for free. Listen to them repeatedly. Folks, listen, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to pray. 
there are certain um, sermons by certain individuals I've listened to 35 and 40 times because I want to get it down. And I would love it if you all would do the same thing with some of these teachings, especially the one like what we did today. There's no excuse for you not to be equipped to share the gospel with people. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say this. God expects it of you. God expects it of you. He's made it very easy for you to get online and learn these principles, to learn how to articulate this. Steal some of my phrases. Steal some of my... I don't care. This, that's why I gave you all this, so that you could go and you could learn and you could present the gospel as good or better than I do it. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.